And research shows that we are distracted almost half of the time. And it also shows that we are less happy when we're distracted. So there's this interesting work where they would ping people over the course of their days and ask, what are you doing? And what are you thinking about? Namely, are you thinking about what you're currently doing? As well as how are you feeling? How happy do you feel right now? And what they found is that we are distracted almost half the time, 47% of the time. We are not thinking about what we're currently doing. We are thinking about something else. Mm -hmm. And it also shows, and that's also irrespective of the type of activity. It's not just boring tasks that we are distracted, even these like wonderful activities, like, you know, being with your daughter. Um, But also it shows that we are less happy when we are distracted, when our mind is wandering. That is, we're more happy when we are paying attention to the moment. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey friends, it's Michelle Lamoureux and welcome back to the Good Life Coach Podcast. Today we are talking about how to live happier lives and joining us to have that conversation is Cassie Holmes, who is a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. She's an award-winning teacher and researcher on time and happiness and the author of Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time and Focus on What Matters Most. Um, the course that she's developed and now teaches applying the science of happiness to life design is among UCLA's most popular for MBAs and executive MBAs. And prior to joining UCLA, Cassie was a tenured faculty member at Wharton, and she has a PhD from Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and a BA from Columbia. Um, thank you for being here. Welcome, Cassie. Oh, thank you so much for happy for having me. I am happy to be here. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, we are talking about happiness. Yeah. I was thinking about how the founding fathers embedded in terms of what the ideal is that we have the right, right? This is our fundamental right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The fact that that was one of the things that they included, yeah. I thought it's really interesting. And it's something that I think we're all aspiring to. And uh, it's just a complex topic, don't you think? I mean, how did you get on this path of exploring happiness? Yeah, it is It is complex. Um, and it is, I would actually, <laughs> not to disagree with our founding fathers, while I think it's really important, I think the pursuit of it is actually can be, um, can backfire. Um, but prioritizing our happiness is really important. And oftentimes we feel um, it's sort of like brushed aside as a frivolous or a selfish pursuit, but it's absolutely not. And there's a lot of data to support that. Research shows that when we feel happier, it allows us to show up better in what we do across our domains of life, in the workplace, in our interpersonal relationships, and even with respect to health. And it makes us nicer. So it's like, 
When we feel happier, studies show that it makes us more creative, more adaptive in our problem solving. Happy employees are more engaged and better performers at work. Also in our interpersonal relationships, when we feel happier, we like other people more, we are liked by other people more, it makes us nicer. And there's studies that show that happiness increases immune functioning, makes us react better to physiological stressors. So all of this points to the fact that happiness is not a sort of silly fleeting thing. And it is important for us to keep in mind and not be in constant pursuit of what will make me happy, but instead be informed by investing our time in ways that will contribute to our emotional well-being. And also, I, I think it's worth noting when I'm using the term happiness or happy, what I'm referring to is what we refer to in the literature as subjective well-being. So it includes both experiencing more positive emotion than negative emotion during our experiences, during our days, but also feeling more satisfied about our experiences and about our lives. So there is both this emotional as well as sort of cognitive evaluative component um, that we I'm sort of putting forth. So it is about satisfaction, a sense of fulfillment and meaning, as well as experiencing and finding joy in our days. I love that you clarify that. And that's really at the heart of this podcast too. It's about inviting women to get connected to what lights them up, what makes them happy and to pursue more of that. And I actually, let's not use the word pursue. Let's use the word prioritize. I I think words carry energy and it's important because they create framework. So yeah, maybe we'll rebrand the, you know, what the intention should be. It's not the pursuit of happiness. It's truly prioritizing happiness, which isn't something it should, it seems to me, come naturally, but it doesn't necessarily come naturally just because we just don't feel like we can fit it in, which is in essence why you wrote this book and teach your class. I mean, happier hour. You tell us that people think money is going to make them happy, but you, your research points to time. So tell us what, what that's about. Yeah. Um, so it is it, in my earlier um, work, I looked at what's the effect of focusing on time versus money as our most critical resource. And what we find is that those who recognize time as their most critical resources, value it more, um, are happier. And that's sort of controlling for how much time and money they have available. Um, and the reason is when we are focused on time as our critical resource, we're more intentional in how we spend it. We spend it in ways that are aligned with our values. Yes. Um, and that contributes to our sense of satisfaction. But to your point, like it's about prioritization because so often when we're thinking about time, we're like, holy cow. I don't have enough hours in my day. That is this feeling of time poverty, yes. this acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And this is a serious issue because yeah. it's really prevalent. Like we conducted a national poll that showed that nearly half of Americans feel time poor. 
They feel like they don't have enough hours in the day to do what they set out to do. And moms tend to feel more time poor than dads. Working parents, particularly when your partner works, those are the folks that feel particularly temporally impoverished. But our data shows that all types of people, even like those who don't work for pay, those who don't have kids also suffer from the sort of hectic pace of life, feeling like they have too little time. Yes. Um, I'm actually surprised it's not even like a larger group than more than half. Like I I wouldn't be surprised if you had said the majority of people feel that way, because it (laughs) seems like everyone I talk to is always saying that, you know, I don't have enough time. I got to get this done. I'd love to see you, but I'm out of time. And I choose not to use the word busy. I don't know why, but I have a personal dislike of the word busy. I feel like, because we can choose busy. Um, right. And so, but I do think a lot of us have a lot on our plates and so managing all that. And so you're going to help us navigate some of this today. Um, in the book you wrote, I couldn't remember a time in which I hadn't felt like I was racing against the clock, trying to achieve as much as possible during every hour. This is what we're talking about, right? I'm not alone in this. We live in a culture driven toward productivity, so much so that busyness has become a status symbol that is taken to signal an individual's worth. Um, absolutely. And also, I think we do get some satisfaction knowing we could, we've checked things off of our list. I mean, I'm guilty of this and I'm not very, I, I keep lists, but I'm not one of the type of person who has the one neat little list that they work off. I have like 10 lists, but yeah. knowing that I've gotten something done really makes me feel good. And yeah, you know, sitting with idle time is hard, but um, elaborate a little bit on this. You know, your research showed that people with less than two hours of free time a day were lower on the happiness scale, but that people who had five or more hours of free time also were lower on the happiness scale. So how how do we start thinking about time and navigating, like finding that sweet spot if there in fact is one? Yeah. And there's so many pieces of that, that I like want to unpack. Um, first of all, the lists, (laughs) like, yes, yes. I am, um, subject to it too. I have a list that is like, even if I'm not, it's not right in front of me as in my mind, running through the list of always all the things that I have to do and I'm planning for and coordinating for, and it is distracting and it pulls us out of that, the moments that we're spending, um, And uh, it is satisfying to check things off the list. Now, a lot of what I talk about in the book is trying to figure out what are those important things? What are those things that are truly important, whether they are written down on your to-do list or not, but making sure that those are the things that we prioritize and make time for, as opposed to like, sometimes we use our to-do list as sort of what I refer to as productive procrastination. Yes. But sometimes it's easier to sort of check the little things off our list, but it is a way of procrastinating from getting into the really hard and deep and important work. Um, and also that when our to-do list is um, sort of perpetually driving us, it uh, makes us feel guilty for stopping and taking the breaks and really investing in 
when I'm talking about some of those things that matter is the people, <laughs> the relationships, yes. Yes. Um, even our sort of space to think, to create, um, to relax. So all to say, and we can talk about, I, I share some strategies based off of my research of how do we sort of take breaks and sh- like sort of pause that to do our doing mode so yes. that we do have some time to be, um, but to sort of the, uh, where you concluded with your question, this sort of how much discretionary time is the ideal amount in our days. And what we did was we looked at that. Um, we, with my sort of, the, among my favorite colleagues, Hal Hirschfield and Marissa Shreve, we calculated, or we looked at across studies and one of the studies we analyzed data from the American time use survey that looks at for tens of thousands of working as well as non-working Americans, how they spent a regular day. And from that, we calculated how much time they spent on discretionary activities and related that to their happiness. And in that, the pattern of results that we found across the studies and in this one too, is an inverted U shape. So it's mm-hmm. like a arc or a rainbow, suggesting that happiness goes down on both ends of the spectrum. And in that data, it suggested that those with less than approximately two hours of discretionary time in the day were less happy. And that is because those are the time poor folks. Those are like us with because of heightened feelings <laughs> of stress. Yes. They are less happy. But yes. I think the more surprising and interesting thing is the other end of the spectrum. We found that folks with more than approximately five hours of discretionary time in the day were also less happy. And looking as to why is that we are driven to be somewhat productive. Now we have to sort of figure out how do we make it so that that isn't sort of bowling through all of our day's hours, Yes, but we are averse to being idle. So when we spend all the hours of our days with nothing to show for how we spend those hours, it undermines our sense of purpose. And from that, we feel less satisfied. So this is really important for those of us who are time poor, who are rushing around. And in those moments, it's like, it's too much. And I don't think I can do it all. And I have absolutely considered quitting with this daydream that if only I sort of moved to a sunny island somewhere and had like all the hours of my days to spend exactly how I wanted, then surely I would be happy. Yes. But our data suggests that's not true. And then even like reflecting on like day four of my beach vacation, I too, I'm like, okay, what are we doing now? Like completely ready yes. to get stuff done. And so yes. we want to avoid the extremes, but also there's a pretty wide range between two and five hours of discretionary time in the day. There's not a relationship between the available hours and happiness. And that's pointing to that I really think the answer isn't so much about the amount of time you have available. It's really how you invest the time that you have available. It is about finding what are those activities that are worthwhile and maximizing those in terms of prioritizing time for them and minimizing the amount of time you waste. And then, but also when you're spending on those worthwhile activities of 
your engagement, like of not being distracted um, and your mindset during them so that, you know, that to-do list that might be distracting during the time that you sort of quiet that so that you can get the most out of the time that you're actually spending. Absolutely. And I think that in relationship, whether that's with your partner, your friends, your children, people want your full attention. It doesn't feel good if you're trying to connect with somebody and they're on their phone or distracted, you know, and I know even my daughter who's 14 now sometimes will be like, mom, can I have your full attention? Because she, she might be catching me mid typing or something. And I'm like, I, you know, okay, I'll stop. But you know, part of me is like, it's not that I was ignoring you in the first place. It was just that I was engaged in something else, but that's what they crave, right? We all want to feel seen and heard and valued. And so if we're distracted, um, then we're robbing everyone of that experience of true connection, right? That's really at the heart of it, isn't it? Totally. And it's so important um, because those relationships that, you know, genuine social connection, as you said, like, yes, with our family, but even with friends and colleagues at work, genuine connection is so important and so fundamental to our happiness. And the role of phones as a source of destruction, it's not only how they experience it. Like, as you said, your daughter is like, pay attention to me. Yes. But it's also how you experience it. You're robbing yourself of of that sort of potential connection and that moment. And research shows that we are distracted almost half of the time. And it also shows that we are less happy when we're distracted. So there's this interesting work where they would ping people over the course of their days and ask, what are you doing? And what are you thinking about? Namely, are you thinking about what you're currently doing as well as how are you feeling? How happy do you feel right now? And what they found is that we are distracted almost half the time, 47% of the time. We are not thinking about what we're currently doing. We are thinking about something else. Mm -hmm. And it also shows, and that's also irrespective of the type of activity. It's not just boring tasks that we are distracted, even these like wonderful activities, like, you know, having, being with your daughter. Right. Um, but also it shows that we are less happy when we are distracted, when we're mind is wandering, that is, we're more happy when we are paying attention to the moment. And so one of the strategies that I talk about is actually sort of carving out these worthwhile activities or these sort of happy times as no phone zones. Of course, you know, it's not like we're getting rid of our phones altogether. Our phones are very functional and hopeful. It allows us to get stuff done, but it also pulls us out of the moment. And so when it's, it's about intentionality, it's like, if you, given that we have so little time, if you're going to take this step of spending time on an activity that matters to you and is worthwhile, carve it out as a known phone zone. Mm-hmm. Put your phone away. Out of sight is closer to out of mind. There's even research in a study that shows that the phone on the table with friends dining serves as a distraction. So when they had the, the participants put their phones away so you couldn't see them, they enjoyed the dining experience more because wow. they were more engaged. And this isn't also just for social time. It's really important for some of our work hours. Like yeah. the the work that we do, that we, there's so much of our work days that are sort of work about work and are like not critical to like 
you know, like achieving our goals and fulfilling our purpose. Yes. But we have, so we have to protect time for that. And sometimes that work is a little harder to get into. It requires deeper thinking and we like getting into a flow state. That's when we're like our most creative, most productive. Uh, We're at our best. But if we're getting distracted by incoming pings from our phone or even like email open, then we're not, there's no hope of getting into a flow state. So even carving out some work hours as no phone zones so that it allows you to make progress and invest in that part portion of your work that truly does matter to you. Yes, I think phones are a huge problem. And I'm more concerned about like my kids' generation. I mean, I'm Gen X, so I actually can remember when phones were just something maybe you had just in case your car broke down on the side of the road. That's the first time I got a phone was like commuting to a job that was far away. But somehow you met the friend, you know, I remember traveling to Greece and I didn't have a cell phone. I'm like, I hope she meets me in Mykonos when I arrive, you know, like I hope I can find her Um, or meeting my brother down in Argentina for a trip, you know, like there he was at the airport with a driver and a sign, but we didn't feel this need to be so like, we didn't have the phone, but now it's like, as I'm talking to you, I do have the phone here because in my mind, I think, well, what if the school calls? What I'm not looking at it. I'm not distracted by it. I'm 100% with you. But if it vibrated, my first thought might be like, oh, what about my my kid? But with, the, with our children's generation too, um, with social media and the prevalence of it and the research showing that our attention spans are getting shorter. I mean, I even feel this, you know, in my 50s sometimes like, oh, wait, uh, you know, my focus doesn't feel as spot on. Maybe that's perimenopause. I don't know, <laughs> or if it's or or if it's because of because of the phones. And there's different um, reasons. There's multiple reasons that um, the phones are so problematic from a happiness and uh, emotional well being perspective. Um, one is social um, comparison. So. The that be real app is addressing that, but ignoring it's like making other problems elsewhere. But so social comparison, social media is um has been shown to uh reduce self-esteem. Um, because what it is doing is is that we sort of have this constant um uh, reflection of people's happiest moments. And it's not an accurate reflection of all the moments of your life, of their lives. You're just seeing when they're the happiest, when they're like out with friends and, and what we tend to do when we are, this is um, a natural tendency is we tend to focus on those who are doing better than us, as opposed to those who are doing worse than us. (laughs) So with this sort of constant um, sort of look into how other people are better than us and that at any moment they're doing something more fun because someone is posting somewhere doing something fun while you're like, at, you know, on your couch looking at your phone. <laughs> so the social comparison component is absolutely terrible for our happiness um, from social media, but also the distraction is pulling us out of our moments by sort of making us feel that we constantly have to be connected to people out there what it does is it disconnects us from the people that we are actually with and yes. with what we're doing in that moment. And so by understanding the negative role of social comparison 
and distraction, um, we like that's why <laughs> um, we we it is something to be aware of. And so the no phone zones helps minimize the distraction, and it sort of saves you from those moments of social comparison. But also, you could also just get off social media altogether. <laughs> And sort of save yourself from the social comparison hit on happiness. Completely. And you're not on um, anything but LinkedIn, correct? You don't have an Instagram or... No. And well, <laughs> it's not great for book publicity. Well, that's, um, a, that's the trick, right? So if you have is. like a platform like the podcast, I like to go on and share it just because you want to reach more people. Yeah. I mean, it's um, in the course that I teach to our MBAs. Um I give assignments every week um, so that they can apply what the data and the science shows um, is good for their emotional well-being. And then I, in the book, Happier Hour, I share those assignments so that readers can apply the exercises too. But the very first week of the course, it is a digital detox. So I have them get off of their, be disconnected from their phones and email and the internet for six hours, uh, consecutive hours during the week. And I will say that sort of like you, my students are a little anxious, actually a lot anxious about this idea of like, well, what if someone is trying to reach me? What if, you know, like I won't be able to be productive and there's a lot of anxiety, um, but inevitably, and it sh- follows the same cadence for all of my students, is there, there's that anxiety. And actually, for the first hour of it, there continues to be that nervousness of like, oh my gosh, what if someone's trying to reach me? There's that behavioral tick of like reaching for where your phone usually is just to check. And yes. it's like, but then once that sort of initial sort of anxiety starts to wane, and then people are like sort of oh my gosh, they're in the moment. It's like by disconnecting from that sort of outside world, it fully allows you to connect with what you're doing, to connect with the people that you're actually with. Um, And then inevitably coming out of that time, people realize just how important it is to have this time that is offline. Um, and actually, even though they were scared about being less productive or not being able to be productive and get things done, many of them actually got a lot done because it gave the space to do those things that they had been waiting for and like didn't think they had the time to do. But you finally get to those things, and then it feels so satisfying um, to get you know those bigger tasks uh, off your the important tasks off the plate. Okay. So this is good. Cause that's actually one of the strategies that we can all, we can all do that, you know, yeah. and yeah. the six hours could be on a weekend when you are with your family and when better to like shut down that phone and just enjoy, you know, your people. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I will say the six hours is like, you can do it. Like that's the sort of detox where you sort of go through the withdrawal to realize just how important it is, Yeah, but it doesn't need to be six hours. So that's what I was talking about. The no phone zones. Like it doesn't need to be six hours every weekend. Like it can be like, you know, those two hours when you get home from work and you're having dinner with your family, like carve out those as your yeah. no phone zones, or maybe it is six hours on the weekend, or maybe it's even the whole weekend. <laughs> totally. Know? Yeah. You, I think you, it's, some, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a fun thing to play with. Well, let's talk a little bit more then about, um, 
strategies for women specifically too, because, you know, in your research, you talked about when we don't have enough time, the first thing that goes is like self-care. So for you, at one point, you love your morning run and you realized it was the first thing that you ditched. And then you added that back in. I think that's true for myself and for most of the women listening that we are the first to get off of our priority list, our mm-hmm. not pursuit of happiness, but our priority of happiness. Yeah. So how do we add ourselves back in? And one of the things we talk about on the show too, is to really pay attention to those inner whispers, what's calling you and to carve time out for that. Those are the things that are going to get us into flow state. Those are the things that are going to bring joy, but we're not finding the time in our day. So help us navigate I think that the the first step is to identify what are those ways of spending that really do uh, fulfill you. So there's time tracking, but there's also simply reflecting, reflecting back over your last two weeks or even your last month. What were those activities that brought you most joy? Um, and for, for me, one of like there's my social connection ones. And I can talk about those because the value of social connection is so great. But one of them is like my morning run, it is time that is not at all social. And it's in fact, because nobody else is there that makes it so decadent and wonderful. (laughs) And um, exercise has been shown to be, it's a direct mood booster. It's very effective at offsetting anxiety, offsetting depression and it increases self-esteem and a sense of what you can accomplish, self-efficacy. Um, and it's and also like being outside, there's also a mood boost that from being outdoors and research supports that. Um, but so often for me, my morning run, it's when I feel busy, I don't do it. But once you recognize what those important things are to do, then it's a question of prioritizing, putting them into your schedule. And in some cases, that involves coordinating with others in your household to make sure that you can prioritize it. And what we, so time poverty, as I mentioned, is the feeling of not being able to accomplish what you set out to do, not having the time, but we have found in our research that when you spend time on things that increase your self-efficacy, like exercise, like actually doing something nice to help another out, by spending that time, you're like, holy cow, I accomplished a lot with my time and mm-hmm. I can accomplish what, you know, like it increases that sense of what you can accomplish uh, sort of given the resources that you have, namely time. And so actually by spending time in these ways that are fulfilling, that increase our self-efficacy, that then increases our sense of time affluence. It limits our sense of limitation. Um, And so it's just a question of making the time to do it. And then that will help you realize that you do have the time that you need to do these important things and that it will actually may expand you and expand your sense of time. Okay. So let's continue on this thread because I think it's so important. And I know that I love working out. I always feel better. And like you said, you get that sense of accomplishment and it boosts, you know, the endorphins and all the good stuff. But um, is, is it a mindset shift or is it literally a calendar shift? Because, or does it kind of go hand in hand? Like, how did you 
start it starts adding with it back the calendars in. shift. Okay. So right? how do we do that? So, cause you talk all in chapter, uh, chapter eight was probably yeah, because time yes. crafting. Yeah. The yes. time crafting. Cause I think, you know, you have to start, um, prioritizing the happiness. And by doing that, you have to look at your calendar. So take us into strategies. Like, I think you have a free download too on your website. Do you have that? Or it's in Um, the book. For, so I have the blank. So time crafting chapter eight is basically where pulling all of the strategies from that I've shared over the course of the book. How do you actually design a week so that you are making time for the things that matter and actually maximizing the impact of those worthwhile activities, minimizing the impact of the less fun activities. Um, and, and I sort of frame it as time crafting because there's sort of an art to it. And, um, I think it's helpful for folks to think about their time as a mosaic and each of the tiles are your hours or your activities. Mm-hmm. And then you are crafting how do you sort of piece together your hours and your activities to make it sort of as beautiful as possible. Um, and even that analogy itself is helpful because it takes the strain off of any given hour that it's like in an if we're just thinking about the hour, that forces yeah. you to make trade-offs between things that matter to you. Like, it's like this hour, am I picking my kid up from school or am I getting that hour, extra hour of work done? That is forced, you're you're lose on both sides, right? Because if you decide to pick up your kids from school, then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm deprioritizing the work that matters to me. Yeah. If you choose work, then you're like, oh my God, I'm an awful parent because I'm not spending this important time to be there for my kid. Right. But by thinking about all of the tiles, uh, your week overall, then you can be more thoughtful. It's like, it's not a question of whether you're going to spend an hour in one way or not. It's really a question of when. Mm. And so you can put and see what are those times in your week, those hours that you are going to dedicate to the work that's so important to you? What are those hours that you're going to dedicate to the people that are so important to you in a way that is sort of optimal? And maybe once you see that, like, oh my gosh, I have all this like really dedicated and wonderful time on the weekend and on evenings, then that three o'clock pickup doesn't become an all or nothing. Are you a good parent or not? Um, So it is about sort of, and then having recognized, you know, exercise is really important to me. All right. Given that, where am I going to put it? When am I going to put it into the week? So again, it's not a question of whether or not, you know, you're going to exercise. It's when are you going to exercise and putting it there into your calendar, protecting the time to make sure that you do it. Because of course, once you like the night before that morning, you're gonna be like, oh, I don't have time, but it's yeah. in your calendar. And so you do it. And then once you do it, you're like, oh my gosh, this was so, so, I'm so glad I did it because, you know, coming back from that morning run, it's like, oh my God, day, bring it on. And it was like, you show up nicer and excited. Of course. Like a sense of like, you can, you can do all the stuff that matters to you. Also exercise is a really interesting one because it not only 
affects how you feel during that time, but it has like wonderful carryover effects to influence how you feel across your other activities. Same with sleep. Sleep is something that you need to create and protect time to get the seven or eight hours you individuals know for themselves, the amount that they need. Yes. Um, Because that influences how you experience all the other activities in your day. Um, So, I mean, there's so many strategies across the book, but the time crafting is pulling it all together about how do you place these really important activities into your schedule, put them in there first, protect the time because like all the other time will get filled with noise and et cetera. Um, But at least this way at the end of the week, even though you will have been busy and your schedule will be full, you will feel fulfilled and not just depleted. And like you were super busy with not even feeling that satisfied and instead you feel exhausted. Absolutely. You're giving to yourself. And of course, that creates more fulfillment and happiness, and ultimately the happiness that we're seeking, right? You talk about a professor that you share uh, his work in the first day of class where there's the jar, right? And he's filling the jar. And so many of us are filling our jars with the things that don't matter. Can you just tell us briefly a little bit about this? Because I think it's a good visual in terms of when we're time crafting, how we're trying to approach this. Yeah, I'm glad you asked because it's a super helpful analogy and it is something that I continue to touch back to and think about when I'm making my own time spending decisions. And it's about prioritization. So basically, and it's nicely shown in the short film and in the short film that I share on the first day of class, a professor walks into his classroom and on the desk at the front of the classroom, he puts a large clear jar And then from a bag, he pulls out golf balls and he pours the golf balls into the jar such that they reach the very top. And he asks the students, is the jar full? They nod their head because it looks full. Then from the bag, he pulls out pebbles and he pours the pebbles into the jar and they fill the spaces between the golf balls up to the very top. And he asks the students again, is the jar full? They nod because it looks full and then nope. (laughs) And he pulls, pours sand into the jar and the sand fills all those spaces between the golf balls, between the pebbles and they reach the very top and he asks the students, is the jar full? And by this point, the students are laughing and they're like, yes, the jar looks full. And then he explains, this jar represents the time of your life. The golf balls are all of those things that really matter to you. Your relationships with your family, your friendships, the work you do that is in line with your purpose, that is uh, so important to you. The pebbles are the other things in your life, like your job and your house. The sand is everything else. The sand is all of that stuff that fills your time without you even thinking about it, whether it's social media or your email inbox, those like requests that inevitably and always are coming in for your time that is just easier to say yes to than no to. But what's really important to know is that had he put the sand into the jar first, all of the golf balls would not have fit. That is, if we let our time get filled, it will get filled without us even thinking about it, but it will get filled with stuff that's not necessarily important to us. But what it means is that then we won't have time for the golf balls. We won't have enough time for all the stuff that does matter. And so what's so important is for us to identify what are our golf balls 
What are those things that matter? And put those into your schedule first. Make the time, put them into that calendar, the morning run, for example. And then, because all of the other time, like sand will wash in and fill all of the rest up. It's just, it will ensure that you will have invested in those things that matter to you. And that's where you get the fulfillment and satisfaction and heaviness, even if you are busy. Love it. Um, Is there anything, I mean, you you gave us a lot of great strategies, but anything you want to make sure that you leave the women listening with today um, before we sign off? Yeah. I mean, one, um, one thing that I think is really important is to recognize just how much happiness there is available to us in our everyday ordinary experiences. Um, but we tend, because of hedonic adaptation, we get used to things over time such they stop influencing us as much. Um, that is like we stop noticing, um, the, the sort of happiness in these ordinary experiences. Um, and it's, I share several strategies to help offset hedonic adaptation. One of them is recognizing that even though these things are sort of everyday experiences now, they won't continue to happen every day. And counting times left for these everyday experiences that bring us joy um, highlights actually in many cases that they're significantly sort of a less than we expect. And so sort of as an example, my weekly coffee date with my daughter, Lita, it's such a source of joy for me. And it was something that like was a routine, a very functional routine of me wanting to get coffee on my way to dropping her off at preschool turned into this like treasured ritual Hmm. where we stop at the coffee shop and it's a half hour where the two of us, she has her hot chocolate. I have my flat white. We munch on croissants and this is where we're just in it together. This is our special time together. And I calculated. So the first step is seeing how many times have you done this activity in your life thus far? I calculated we've done about 400 of these coffee dates. (laughs) And then counting or estimating how many times are you likely to do it in the future, accounting for the fact that circumstances in your life will change. If your joyful experience involves another, circumstances in that person's life will change. So I calculated Lita's seven now. I predict that when she turns 12, she'll probably rather go to the coffee shop with her friends instead of me. So it won't be weekly. It'll be a negotiation. And then she's going to go off to college. And then she's going to, you know, probably move to New York or something. So I calculated we have about 230 coffee dates together left. That's 36%, much less than half of our all of our coffee dates together left. And she's only seven. And what that recognition does is it makes me prioritize this time that even in those busy weeks, we go on our coffee date. I make the time, we plan around it. And then also when I'm spending that time, I'm fully in it, right? Phone is absolutely away. That to-do list that I talked about at the beginning that's in my mind is quieted because I recognize just how precious this time is and how like this is the time of, you know, our lives. This is the time that matters. And this 30 minutes, it's only 30 minutes each week, but it has a really profound effect 
on my sense of satisfaction in life, you know, because I feel that true, I have a wonderful relationship with my daughter. We are connected and we also anticipate this time. It's not just the 30 minutes that we're spending, but we look forward to this time each week. And then we reflect back on it. We remember it and we talk about it and we take Mm. pictures. We have years of our coffee date pictures. And um, so I think it's so important for um, all of your listeners to recognize is again, the answer for happiness and time isn't about how much time you have available or even how much you spend on a given activity. (laughs) It's really how rich you make that time. Yes. Um, And we have agency in it. We have control and it just requires some intentionality. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I don't know. I just got emotional when you shared that story because that's the relationship I have always had with my daughter. And she is at the age now where weekends are, oh, you know, can I be dropped off and we're going to go off? And I'm like, yeah. oh, you don't want to hang out with me? You know, so I, so you said your daughter's seven, mine's 14. So yes, you're correct. That is coming. Um, so, so it made me really emotional because, but I'm also grateful because we always had those very treasured, I mean, our lives. I'm very grateful that I've had that kind of experience. And I, I think, thank you for sharing that story because it's really beautiful. And I think we can take that away. And I, I know we're at the end of the time, but I am also going to note that I noticed you have a beautiful relationship with your husband, Rob, and that you yes. also carve time. So share that because I think also, you know, I'm 21 in 21 years into uh, a marriage. I adore my husband. He works like crazy. I'm trying to build something, you know, here we are in our fifties doing this. And, um, I was just saying to him today, I'm like, you know what? I think I was inspired by your book. I'm like, we both love walks. The dog needs to be walked. Like I'm going to meet you for 30 minutes once a day. We're going to find that time to at least connect because by the end of the day, we're so tired. Yeah. That's really, and it's so great. And it requires, so like that becomes your ritual, your shared ritual, um, couples who have shared rituals, report greater relationship satisfaction. Um, And I, for Rob and I, you know, talking about time crafting uh, each week, but uh, on Friday nights, we have date night and Mm -hmm. it is so important. And we commit to it. We actually use a pre-commitment device. That is, we have a babysitter, standing babysitter who shows up at six o'clock every Friday And on those days, you know, where we're tired and we're like, let's just stay home or let me finish up work. We don't because we have to pay her anyway. And so (laughs) she's there. (laughs) We get out of the house and we're always so grateful that we did because what it does is this is time that we're stepping away from kitchen cleanup, stepping away from logistics, and we are each other's focus. And what it does is it ensures that we stay connected. amidst the busyness of our lives. And uh, like both of us sort of like, we're both very capable, competent people. And we're sort of like teammates as we're doing it. But this is where instead of sort of going side by side through life, we like turn and face each other and have that conversation or even on your walk, even if you're both like walking, like it is dedicated time for you just to connect and yes. have those conversations, get outside. And it's a, it's a treasured tradition or ritual. Give it a name. It's like your, your, your dates. You yeah. Know? Like right. Or walking out. dates. Yeah. I love that. And I've loved this conversation. I mean, like you said, it's not happy hour, it's happier hour. It's how do we, 
find more happiness and how do we start prioritizing versus pursuing the happy that we desire in our lives. And um, thank you for taking the time. And, you know, people can dive into your book, Happier Hour, right? I mean, they can pick it up. There's so much richness and a lot of exercises and also just the science and the research that was put behind all of the things you put in here. So they can also listen to it because everyone's so time poor. There's an audio book and it's me narrating it. So I will, (laughs) you can do it while commuting. This is a strategy we didn't talk about, but it's a very effective one. We don't like time commuting. So when you get in a car, you can turn on an audio book and and, sort of read read books, join a book club even. Now you can, if you're listening to audio books every time you get in the car. Yes. Yes. So you can read it or listen to it to get the insights. I love that. I have not listened to an audiobook yet, but I love podcasts. So I usually put one on, but most of my friends are doing the audiobooks. I think I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to try that as one of my strategies. <laughs> um, thank you so much. So where can people follow you, connect with you? What where do you hang out then? Um <laughs> since join yes. me for a cup of coffee in my meeting. Yes. It's well, we're well, coming I mean, to your class. <laughs> we're gonna yeah. come to your class at UCLA. Um my website, CassieMHolmes.com, um, has uh, a lot of my research and where I am. Um, and then I am on LinkedIn, but as you said, I'm not on other social media. So it's really my website or reading the book and spreading the word to help folks be happier in their hours. Love it. And why not? Let's. You're walking your talk. Why should you be all over Instagram? It's such a time sink. I love that you walk your talk. Actually, that says so much. All of the show notes for today will be over at thegoodlifecoach.com and links to Cassie's website, her book, the audio book. And uh, please take a second to share this with a friend. I think this is how women rise. We share what's good and uh, let's get happier together. So thanks again, Cassie, for this amazing conversation. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.